The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, thank you, Mr. Jalovic, and uh, I miss you too. Um, don't get me started. Um, but yes, that fellowship has been greatly appreciated. Uh, being able to be across the hall and share articles and books and conversation has been uh, very edifying to me and the friendship I'm very grateful for. I'm also very grateful for the gift of music. Um, I came to the Lord through music, I'll spare you the story, but uh, the Lord used worship music in a very significant way in my life. And as we were singing and praying in song, uh, I was just thinking that I hope that you really appreciate the privilege that is yours, because after this time, these occasions to gather with such regularity with other believers and to join your voices throughout the week in song and praise and thanksgiving to God are going to be much less frequent. And this really is a, a great blessing, and I hope that you recognize that, that you look upon it not simply as something to be checked off as a requirement, but that your heart would really revel in the great privilege that is ours that so many believers around the world would long for. And so uh, I'm just very grateful and grateful to our worship team this morning for leading us so, so well. Over 15 years ago, the late theologian Marva Dawn wrote a helpful little book that she called Talking the Walk, Letting Christian Language Live Again, in which she encouraged readers to consider the depths of meaning of several words that have long been part of the Christian faith and Christian tradition, but that we are in danger of uh, corrupting by treating them as cliches or slogans, or in some cases, neglecting them altogether. In her introduction, she explains that the book is her response to a crisis in the churches, and this is what she describes it as. The frequent corruption or rejection of key words in biblical faith for reasons that often seem to be merely quick fixes of, instead of genuine solutions to deeper problems. She continues, during the last century, English-speaking Christians have been stressing that we should walk our talk, that our way of living should match the values we espouse that Christians frequently don't act on what they know and say is still a problem. However, the opposite is often increasingly true, that the way we talk doesn't offer the deepest truths of the Christian faith. Could we also practice letting the Christian language live again in all of its glory? Can we work together with the whole church throughout time and space on rectifying the names and thereby learn more fully to talk our walk. Marva Dawn was concerned that some words have gotten a bad reputation, while others like hell 
are largely ignored. And others like awesome, which is a biblical word, are used with such excess that we lose sight of their theological significance and profundity. Then there are other words that Christians treat as outdated or irrelevant. Surprisingly, one Christian word that Marva Dawn didn't include in her book is love. In the short time that I have your attention this morning, I'd like to begin to think about the profundity and the significance of love. Particularly, our love for one another as we are commanded to do in Scripture, the two passages that were read being among them. And this morning, I'd like to focus on some facets of what love means as it pertains to loving each other. Of course, anything I say about the topic is going to be um, scratching the surface. And I'll give you a hint. If you ever wonder why it is that there are so many theology books with the title Toward a Theology of, it is because that's saying up front, I'm not going to say everything that there is to say about this. This isn't the last word. Uh, but this is an entryway. And so we might think about this as toward a, a theology of love. Now, upon hearing that, that I want to talk about what does love mean, you might think that that is an unnecessary exercise. Who doesn't know what love is? It's obvious. Why in the world do we need to take time to explore what love is? And I would answer that question this way, because in the world, there are a multitude of misconceptions about the nature of love. Common cultural notions of love prevail. For example, love, love's primary aim is to make the one loved feel good. Or, Love never causes discomfort to the one loved. Or, love never finds fault or corrects, but leaves the object of love to him or herself to do as seems best to them. Or, love is simply being nice, courteous. If we are careless, we will unwittingly embrace one or more of those misconceptions about love that are culturally prevalent and read them into the Bible wherever we come across the word love. Consequently, I can think I'm obeying God by doing what in my mind is loving my neighbor, but if my notion of what it means to love is foreign to God's, then in actuality, I'm not really obeying his command, regardless of how good my intentions might be. Bowing to God 
in obeying his command to love my neighbor entails necessarily submitting to his description of what love is and what forms it is to take. He has not left us to define that for ourselves. It is not as though God has given us a blank check and said, I've signed it, you fill in whatever amount you want. No, he calls us to love and he has revealed to us the variety of forms that true love takes. When a lot of people claim that all religions basically teach the same things, one of the things they frequently have in mind that they will cite is that uh, various religions have teaching about loving others or some variant of what we might call or do call the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And while it is certainly true that the command to love others is common to a number of religious systems, it's mistaken to assume that all religious systems hold a common understanding of the nature of love. There is something unique about a Christian conceptualization of love, and it's important for us to recognize that. If we are committed to following Jesus, if we say that we are his disciples, a question that we should frequently ask ourselves and one another is, how closely does my understanding of what it means to love correspond to what Jesus taught and modeled about love? Jesus' understanding of love was dependent upon a comprehensive view of the nature of reality. What is real? What is true? It emanated from knowledge about God and people and the world. Jesus' concept of love is part of a very specific picture of the way things are. Or in language that you have heard and will hear here very frequently, a particular worldview. It's not enough to just use the same word that Jesus and the Bible use and therefore conclude that we're talking about the same thing that Jesus was talking about and meaning or the Bible is talking about when it uses the word love. No, we have to inquire whether we're operating with the same worldview as that of the Bible and understanding love in that context. What you really believe about the nature of the world, the nature of what is real and what is true, will greatly influence how you live in it. We're not always aware of it, but the fact is that our deepest convictions, and I'm not talking about what we merely confess or give assent to, but what we believe and love in the depths of our hearts, about what is true, real, and good, that governs how we navigate through life and how we interact with one another. Another way of putting that would be to say, what I am firmly convinced of concerning the nature and structure of reality, 
directs the course of my life and my relationships. And so what I would like us to do is just look at three, we might call them assumptions about love, biblically derived. I have also referred to them as presuppositions, things that the Bible says this is essential to the nature of love, and then have us inquire as to, is this really how I conceive of love? And the first of these is as follows. Biblical love presupposes the existence of real, objective goodness. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. Biblical love presupposes that there is a true and real goodness that is not dependent upon what I think or what I feel, but that has an existence that is completely independent of me. Obviously, that goodness is based upon the real God who is there. Biblically speaking, love cannot be separated from holiness and truth. We see this a number of places in the scriptures. For example, when Paul is describing love in 1 Corinthians 13, he says that it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but, and you would expect him to say it rejoices in right doing or righteousness, but what he says is, but it rejoices with the truth. Truth, righteousness, love, biblically speaking, are inseparable. When Paul is writing to Titus and he's explaining to him the various qualifications that someone who is aspiring to be an elder should um, possess, he says this, for an overseer, as God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. That presupposes that there is a true goodness that we are to conform to. When he writes his second letter to Timothy, he warns Timothy that in the last days there is going to be increasing corruption amongst people. And he says in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Interesting that love permeates that passage. What it is that people are going to love and what it is that they are not going to love. Notice that he says, not loving good, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He is not thinking that goodness has any existence independent of God, but he is saying that there is a standard of what is really good. That which, as we conform to it, 
is actually profitable for us, beneficial to us, that which fosters flourishing, well-being, thriving. And the reason that this has become such uh, an area of interest to me is because over the years that I have taught, I've been increasingly alarmed by the skepticism that I have seen amongst even professing Christians as to whether or not there is actually an objective standard of goodness or rather whether or not goodness is simply in the eye of the beholder as I deem it to be. We call that relativism, moral relativism. Relativism that denies that there is any such thing as objective, knowable, real goodness is hostile to and incompatible with biblical love. Let me just say that again. Relativism that denies that there is any such thing as objective, real, knowable goodness is hostile to and incompatible with biblical love. If there is no real good, no knowable design for optimal human flourishing, then there is no real love. There can only be indifference. Moral relativism is adversarial to biblical love. It is hostile to it. It is destructive to it. Biblical love presupposes the existence of real, objective, knowable goodness, and it seeks to influence others toward it and by it. To love biblically is to seek to move one toward and to move one by the goodness that God has revealed. It's incoherent to affirm the biblical command to love your neighbor while denying the Bible's insistence that there is divinely revealed moral structure to reality that is intended to foster our flourishing as we conform to it, as we submit to it. If there really is a true and objective goodness that exists outside of us, and if our thriving as human beings depends upon us knowing and conforming to that, then it simply isn't loving to encourage people to live as they please, to rely on themselves as the standard of what is good. We might say concerning this point that biblical love presupposes the existence of an objective and absolute authority as well, because that goodness has an authority in what Mr. Jalovic read, Jesus and Paul are speaking about the command, the divine commands, the authoritative commands to love. Love and law 
in terms of God's instruction, his authoritative instruction, are intertwined. The command to love one's neighbor as oneself is part of God's law, and God is the authority who establishes what love looks like. Well, second point. Biblical love presupposes that there's something of greater value than my immediate comfort, convenience, or pleasure. Years ago, I read a book by the, the late Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist and co-author Dan Allender, a book called Encouragement, the Key to Caring. And in that, they um, say the following. It is most natural to maintain a commitment to our own interpersonal comfort, a commitment that creates a feeling of uneasiness whenever we are tempted to risk authentic involvement in someone else's life. Most of us are simply afraid to threaten our sense of comfortable well-being. Another author, Gary DeLashmitt, wrote a book in which he was describing the various one another's of the New Testament. And he said the following, our culture has largely rejected the legitimacy of moral absolutes and therefore equates moral correction with unloving intolerance. According, today's, according to today's secular climate, we are capable of healthy moral self-direction and external moral correction renders us dysfunctional. Admonition is therefore unnecessary and even harmful. Unfortunately, many Christians have assimilated this mentality to a remarkable degree. They view encouragement as mandatory to spiritual growth, but admonition is tragically absent from their view of love. Think about it. If there is a true an objective goodness that is necessary for me to really thrive. It is not inherently mean to seek to move you towards it and to involve myself in your life to some degree if I think you're diverging from it. We can think about that with respect to evangelism. We can think about that with respect to Christian living and mutual discipleship. Do people abuse that? Of course. But let's not allow the pendulum to so swing to the other end that we entertain a view of love that is not biblical. Any conception of love that precludes, that does away with the idea of any kind of moral correction or that automatically equates that with hatred or hostility is unbiblical. Listen to what the author of Proverbs says in chapter 27. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the words of the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. There are people who will never do you any harm in terms of emotionally, never cause any sting 
They will flatter you to death. But do not think that by that, that is necessarily an indication of love. Someone who is a faithful friend will sting you at times. Not out of hostility, but because they care about you, because they want God's good for you. The author of Ecclesiastes says, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Well, finally, biblical love requires God-trusting courage. The more I delve into what the Bible has to say about real love, the more I have to conclude that a good deal of what passes for love, even in my own life, is actually self-indulgence in disguise. That is, a lot of what is called love is motivated more by self-protection than by genuine concern for the true well-being of the people around me. Might it be that I want to believe definitions of love that require the least of me and that minimize the possibility of my being rejected? If love means never making someone experience discomfort, then I don't have to worry about experiencing their potential rage. If love is simply being nice and never seeking to move them closer to what is truly good by, in some cases, questioning or correcting them, then I remove the risk of being misunderstood or worse, ridiculed or even despised. And what's more, I can write off anyone who might be seeking to love me by offering faithful wounds as a legalist or a judgmental hater. We are often so afraid of being called a hater that we fail to love each other in biblical ways. If our hearts are captivated by those fears, we will not love each other as we ought. And we are living in a culture that feeds incessantly those fears. Whether it be social media or any other platforms that we might think of, we are living in a culture that is constantly telling us what matters most is that you not get canceled. And the, to the degree that I buy that, I am going to reject God's call that I love. In the book that I mentioned by Crabbe and Allender, they note that there is a paradox to love. They say that to love a person, I must be willing to lose my relationship with him dependently holding on to anyone or anything but God is in its final form, they write, idolatry. Idolatry is at root a fear of the wrong God. Well, as Christians, we know ultimately what love is by the person of Jesus Christ. In This Is Love, the Apostle John wrote, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus 
acknowledged that there is a real good. And he was willing to go to great length in order to bring us to it. And he did so, as the scriptures tell us, by entrusting himself continually to him who judges righteously. There was a God-dependent boldness and courage that led him to love as he did. He committed no sin, Peter writes, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It is my hope that we will all, individually and collectively, with frequency, ask the question that I mentioned earlier. How closely does my conception of love approximate, approximate Jesus? We are called not to be conformed to the world, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And one of the subtle ways that we can be conformed to the world is to adopt its mistaken notions of what love is. Let's pray. Our Father, you are the, the pattern you are the source of love. You are the one who reveals to us what love looks like and how it is to be expressed in our lives. And as we have sung, we need you. Every hour we need you. The kind of love that you are calling us to exhibit to one another is something that we do not have in ourselves. But we cry out to you, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, motivate and empower us to love, first of all, you, and to love one another according to how it is that you have revealed it. Father, correct us where it is that our thoughts about what love is are in need of correction. And Father, we pray that you would give us that dependence in trusting you to venture out into one another's lives in love that glorifies you. I know that I have not said all there is to say about it, nor could I, but I pray that you would be pleased to take these, these fragmentary thoughts that are part of a much larger fabric and use them to move upon us in ways that will make us more like our Savior, your Son, our great High Priest and Shepherd, our Elder Brother. And we pray all of this on account of his merits and his mediation. Amen.